Uh, James is one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. It it struggles with an image problem, uh, an image problem that goes back to the days of Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther hated this book. He despised it. He uh, he even, according to one story, cut it out of his Bible. Uh, He he so hated this one. And uh, you've got to remember where Martin Luther was. Martin Luther was responding and reacting to a church that was majoring on salvation by works and all sorts of kind of paying your way and earning your way into salvation. And, and so Martin Luther was kind of reacting to that. And, and uh, he kind of saw James as maybe undermining his mission a little bit. Um, and, and seeing that salvation uh, was, was not by faith alone. And, and Luther's deep suspicion of it uh, kind of resonated on through the church history. And so many Protestant churches are suspicious of the book of James. Although it's unfounded, totally unfounded, his deep suspicion of it. Uh, really is unjustified. Eugene Peterson, the translator of the Message Bible that we read earlier on, uh, said this at the book of James. He said, the book of James is deep and living wisdom. Deep and living wisdom that's on display here. Wisdom is not primarily about knowing the truth, although it includes that. It is skill in living it. That's what wisdom is. It's not about knowledge. It's about applying it. It's about wisdom. It's about the effect that knowledge has. And so he says this, for what good is truth if we don't know how to live it? What good is intention if we can't sustain it? That's what he says. See, James's challenge to us is pretty blunt. It's simple, it's costly, it's painful, but it's simple and blunt. That's James. He says this, what's the point possessing all the answers and then contradicting them by the way we live? That's James's message. That's basically the whole of the book. What's the point of having the answer when actually the way you live seems to contradict it? But we're running ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's just spend a little time setting the scene of the context of this book. All right, We've got to be able to do that because if we don't, what we'll end up doing is mishandling this word of truth. And if we mishandle it, then we may say some things that are totally out of context. So we've got to put James in its context, to its original hearers. And so we ask the question, who, where, when, and why? Who, where, when, and why? So we just need to set the scene. We've got to spend a little bit of time this morning kind of setting the context before we get into the message itself. So I hope you bear with me. And I hope you kind of suck it up. If you get too hot, just open a window or something or start fanning yourself. I don't know. Uh, if it gets too hot, I'll turn the temperature down. If it's on 90 degrees at the back, that's too hot, by the way. And uh, Turn it down to something a bit more comfortable on there. So who, where, when, and why? There are six people in the New Testament that are called James. And so when I was at Bible college, uh, we would have spent one week on each James to kind of assess each's strengths and weaknesses as to whether they were the author of the New Testament or not. And I'm glad to tell you that that's not what we're going to do, all right? We're not going to spend the next six weeks looking at which James wrote the book of James, all right? And a big sigh all went round of relief here in the building, all right? So we're not going to do that. But most of the scholarly opinion falls into the side that James the Just wrote the book of James. James the Just was the half-brother of Jesus. He wasn't an apostle. He was a hugely influential figure in the earliest church in Jerusalem. And being the half-brother of Jesus, he has this unique kind of insight because uh, the apostles, they only see him in the last kind of three years of Jesus' life. But James saw Jesus growing up. James saw Jesus in the bathtub. James saw Jesus at the table. James saw Jesus kind of operating behind the scenes. When he wasn't in this big public ministry, he saw Jesus kind of live out 
these kind of kingdom values. So James has got this unique insight into Jesus. Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. If you look in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appears to James. And most commentators say, well, if Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection, then it must have been to give James a very special task. And as you know, he took on the church from Peter in Jerusalem and he led the church. Paul describes him as the first of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Early church historians called James the model disciple. If you want to know what being a disciple, a follower of Jesus looks like, then you've got to look at James. James had a nickname. His nickname was Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Anybody seen a camel? Yes? I've had a few camels spit at me in Egypt and stuff like that. You've seen a camel, you look at the knees... All right, and it's all kind of calloused and hard and leathery because they spend a lot of time on their knees. And so this is James of this reputation of being this model follower of Jesus. And guess what? He spends a lot of time on his knees praying. His knees become calloused and leathery. He's praying. He's interceding. He's also known for the simplicity of his faith and the humbleness of his faith. What a model disciple he was. We know he was killed in AD 62 by Annas the high priest. He was lynched in AD 62. He was taken to the top of the temple and he was thrown off the top of the temple. The fall didn't kill him, so they stoned him, threw huge rocks at his head, whatever. But even that didn't kill him, so they actually then clubbed him to death. They clubbed him to death. But James was such a model disciple, not only to Christians, but to Jews, that His lynching, his death caused such an uproar, there was a riot in the city. This man was a godly man, he didn't deserve to die like this. In fact, there was such an uproar that Annas only spent three months as the high priest, as a result of what he did. The book that we read today, the book that we are studying this next four or five weeks, is probably the first book written in the New Testament. Written between 45 and 50 AD. If you look in James chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, it says this, James chapter 1 verse 1, James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. It'd be great to bring your Bibles to church. Don't they? Seem to go together to me. Bible, church, Bible, church, Bible, church. Bring your Bibles. Study the word. Bring it with you. So who's he writing it to? Well, many of the Jewish believers scattered from Jerusalem when Stephen was killed. When Stephen was martyred, and you can read the story in the book of Acts, when Stephen was killed, many of the Jewish believers were scattered throughout the empire. And of course, if you're scattered, if you have to flee quickly, you can't take possessions with you. You can't sell your house, you can't get rid of your property, you can't sell your business. And so these guys who are scattered have got no money, they've got nothing. They are isolated. The the, the Gentile mission yet hasn't happened. So they're not fleeing to other churches. So they're scattering in small groups. And so they are, they're exposed. They're, they're being squeezed by persecution from Jews. They're being persecuted. They're, being, they're poor. They have nothing. They become isolated. And so all of this external pressure on this group of people starts to take its toll on the inside. Could you imagine if, if we are persecuted? If we were all desperately poor, if we had had to flee, and we're all gathered together for safety, all of that outward pressure begins to take its toll on the inside, the community. And they start bickering with one another, and they start falling out with one another, and they start missing out on, the, on serving the poor and the opportunities that are around them. The pressure on the outside starts to cause fractures on the inside, and that's what's happening here. 
So James gets up off his knees and instead of praying, begins to write. Because these were still his flock. They were still in his care. Even though they'd scattered, they were still his. They were part of his church and he felt responsible for them. He'd heard stories about some of the internal pressures and the fractures and the the relationships that weren't quite happening. And so he writes to his followers, his flock. Those are in his care. James describes himself as a slave. The rightful property of his master. And if you, if you read the book of James, you could probably read the book of James in about 20 or 30 minutes. Alright? It's, it's a short letter, five chapters. You could probably read it in 20 or 30 minutes. But what strikes you is the vast majority of the book of James is all about relationships. It's all about relationships. It's all about relationships inside the church. It's all about relationships outside of the church, one with another. It's all about relationships. So if you did a quick survey of the Bible uh, in James, it says, care for the orphans and the widows. Treat the care for others equally and fairly. Love your neighbor. It challenges the maturity of faith that's lacking in love and compassion. It celebrates the life that risks itself for those who are themselves at risk. It warns people against emotions that endanger community. It warns us about what we say about other people. It tells us to pay back our debts. Get them cancelled. Watch our reactions to people, he says. Minister to the, to the sick. Share with those who are in distress. Don't give up on those that stray away from Jesus. These are the things. It's all about relationships, the book of James. Except chapter 1. Except chapter 1. The first chapter of James is about you. Me. See, there have to be those moments, isn't there? And then a new year does this. This is why this is such a great chapter to start the new year on. Because there has to be those moments, doesn't there? A new year tends to do this where we, where we look at ourselves. Look at what we became in 2008. Look at what we didn't become in 2008. And we take a long look at ourselves. And James chapter 1 helps us to do that because it turns the spotlight on you. There have to be those moments. If we are to complete the mission that Jesus gave us, which is to bring life and hope and grace and mercy into our world and to begin to transform it one life at a time. If we're going to do that, the only way it's going to accomplish is through you and me. There is no plan B, it's you. You are the hope of the world because it's Christ in you. Paul says to the Ephesian church, keep watch over yourselves and of the flock. You've got to spend a little bit of me time. So we're having a little bit of me time this morning. Is that okay? Well, not me, but you. To his young Timothy, Paul says, his protege, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you'll ensure salvation, both for yourself and those who hear you. Shine the spotlight on yourself, allow the word to change you. If you can change, you can ensure that other people will change as well. So James, in chapter 1, is going to ask you some uncomfortable questions. So are you sitting comfortably? Because you won't be by the end of it, all right? We can legitimately forget about others for a bit. And that's what we're going to do for this session. We turn the spotlight inward. The three questions he asks 
Well, it starts with this one. Am I on the path to maturity? So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2, and we'll read a couple of verses from it. If you haven't, it'll, well, it's there. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Are you on the pathway to maturity? See, if you're going to complete the mission that Jesus gives us, it's imperative that we continue to mature. But there is a pathway to maturity. You see, the goal of maturity is simple. That you may become complete, lacking nothing. That you might be complete. That you might lack nothing. That is an amazing goal. That we may be complete in ourselves as human beings. Not in any kind of want or desire. But the pathway to maturity is non-negotiable, James says. The pathway to maturity is testing. I wish there was a little asterisk by the side of this. Uh, that said, uh, this is the exception of Jonathan Bentley. Uh, this isn't the pathway for you. The pathway for you is the Bahamas. The pathway for you is Hawaii. The pathway for you is just sitting there, wall-to-wall, 24-7 cinema, films, all that stuff. That's the way of maturity for you, Jonathan. Little asterisks, just there. But it doesn't. James says the pathway to maturity is testing. There's no other way. And the terrain through which the pathway goes... It's tough. It's difficult. It's hard. There are challenges. So the goal of maturity is that you lack nothing. The pathway of maturity is non-negotiable. It's testing. And the terrain through which the pathway goes is tough. My boss at Youth for Christ, a man called Eddie Lyle, now heads up Open Doors in the UK. He said, what you are under pressure is what you are. What you are under pressure is what you are. See, pressure, trials or tests have a way of bringing to the surface, well, you. The true you comes out. And so their faith in the book of James is being tested to see whether it's genuine faith or not. If their faith is genuine, James says, it will produce perseverance. The word perseverance in the book of James here literally means tenacity, stickability, the ability to press on. One translation calls it to, to be steadfast. I love that word, to be steadfast. To have faith for healing is one thing. But to continue to be faithful while the storm of long-term sickness or bereavement or sorrow or disappointment rages around you is a completely different level of faith. See, you can say that you believe that God is your father, but as long as your confession remains untested, your confession hasn't matured into a conviction. And the pathway to maturity is moving from confession to conviction. For many of you in this room, you know what I'm talking about. You've walked this pathway to maturity. I know some of your faces in here and I know some of the stories that you've gone through. You've walked this pathway to maturity. You've stood firm in the face of the storm. When situations that blew up, that seemed to sneer at your confession in a loving God, you've held on, you've been steadfast, you've persevered, you've endured, you've kept going. 
You've had to keep going when the unfairness of life seems to call into question God's ability to order the universe. But you've remained faithful, steadfast. You know what? You're a hero. You're a hero of the faith. This world of ours throws around words like heroes like any business. But I'm telling you, you're a hero. In Hebrews chapter 11, there are the named heroes. But they're the exception to the rule. Because there's a whole bunch of unnamed heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. Who did and remained faithful. 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 You're a hero. This year, inevitably, trials are going to come to test whether your faith is genuine. Let me say to you, people will disappoint you in 2009. The challenge of sickness is going to face you. Some may lose your jobs. Others may lose loved ones. I'm not operating in unbelief. This is not a negative confession. I'm just saying what I read in the Bible. Because they had to tread the same pathway. Testing, trials produces maturity, growth. It seems the only way our confession moves to conviction is by taking this path of holding steady, of keeping going, of believing, of trusting, of enduring. Sticking to your belief and only then will perseverance produce its effects. James uses the same word that the writer of Hebrews uses for Jesus in chapter 12 verse 2. He says Jesus endured the cross. He stuck at it. He kept going. And he says he stuck at it until Jesus entered his glorious destination. The glorious destination was the salvation of the world, the redemption of men and women. And James is reminding us to stick at it, don't give up, persevere. I know it's hard, I know it's long, I know it's unremitting at times, but such a hard road has a glorious destination that you may be complete, that you may lack nothing. That's why James kicks off this particular verse. Consider it pure joy. The echoes of Jesus are there in Hebrews. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There is a glorious destination to which this pathway leads. And it's that you may be complete. That you may lack nothing. No trial, no matter how great, no sorrow, no matter how overwhelming, can life along outside of the purposes of God. I thoroughly believe that. Because I believe in a God who redeems. I believe in a God who can redeem every situation and he can transform the trial and the test into a stepping stone for personal transformation. And not only that, it doesn't just stop at personal transformation. It ensures, it leads to the salvation of others. If you don't believe that, then you read the end of the story, the book of Acts. Because there are some theologies out there that say nothing bad can ever happen to a Christian. Or should. And here's Paul in the middle of doing God's work and he's shipwrecked. He's shipwrecked. That would challenge some people's theologies already. And yet here he is shipwrecked. Yet God turns around this situation and turns the shipwreck into a time and an opportunity where salvation of others on those on the island of Malta happen. 
And I believe that that can take place. That even though it's tough, even though there are trials, even though there's a testing, that if we endure, if we keep going, if we hold on, if we persist in what we believe in, it leads to not only us being transformed, but there are those around us that he see and hear the testimony that actually there is a glorious destination at the end of it. I watch some of the various Christian channels. I read a lot of the Christian material. And I spend a lot of time listening to various Christian leaders. And I'm often left scratching my head at the low-cost, consumer-driven, carries magic, microwavable, you-can-have-it-all, instant gratification theology that's so prevalent. Do you want to write that down? Low-cost, consumer-driven, carries magic, microwavable, you-can-have-it-all, instant gratification theology. James is pretty blunt, because if he was in the room and he heard some people talk about that, he would walk over to them, slap them, tell them to go and sit down, shut up, and have a bit of a rethink. Peter says, don't think it is strange when all kinds of trials come your way. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. So why have we produced a Christian culture that is so shocked and surprised when trouble comes? When trials hit us? When difficulties come our way? Because James says that if we hold on, if we endure, if we keep going, it will lead to our transformation and the salvation of others. You will be complete, like nothing. So are you on the path to maturity, James says? Are you on the path to maturity? The second question he asks is this, is am I in love with God still? Am I in love with God still? Get your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1 again, verse 12 this time. You still okay? You alright? You awake? How you doing? You're live at the back, I'll see some smiles at the back now. Right. James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I haven't got a time really this morning to unpack each kind of statement, each section. I really want to deal with the end of the passage. But these verses have some key points that we just can't miss out, verses 12 to 19. See, James is reminding this scattered flock that the reason why we endure is that there is a reward. See, there are some outside of the kind of Christian faith who look in at us and think, well, why bother? Why kind of hold on? Why kind of sacrifice life? You know, why in this awful time are you holding on to this belief, this, these values? Why don't you just live a little? Why don't you just give it up? Why don't you opt for a different set of values? Live simply, live easily, do what you like. But James reminds his own followers, look, you have chosen to endure for Christ. To live with our eyes focused on the life that he'll give us a crown. He says he'll give us a crown of life. And if you do a study, here's here's another thing you could do. If you do a study of crowns that are given out in the Bible. And you can see a number of different values of what they mean. You see, in some some contexts, the crown was given and it means dignity. In others, it's, it's victory. For others, it's happiness. For others, it's a reward in heaven. 
And James kind of absorbs all of those meanings to us. And so, so when he says a crown of life, it means he gives us dignity. He gives us happiness. He gives us victory. He gives us the reward in heaven. But here's the most important thing. The one that really struck me when I was studying this this week. Is what attracts the reward is not our endurance. Read what it says. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. What attracts the reward is not our endurance, but our love for God that keeps on enduring. That's what attracts the reward. It's our love and our determination to keep on loving God that attracts the reward. The crown of life is his gift to those who love him. Verse 12. What keeps us fixed on the crown isn't our power of endurance, James says. It's our passion for Jesus. You see, at the start of the new year, it's a great reminder that James gives to us about our heart, our motive. You see, you live by what you love. You live by what you love. That defines, that will define your year. You can can have any New Year's resolution you like. But what is in your heart that you love and value the most will set the parameters for the course of your life. You live what you love. Your life is shaped by what gives you the most joy. So the challenge there is that James... It's saying to you guys, what do you love the most? What do you value the most? Because that will set the course of your whole life. You live by what you love. You make decisions, James says, out of love. So whether it's love for money, love for safety, for security, whether it's love for your kids, well, whatever it's love for, that will set the course of your life. And so right at the beginning of this very first Sunday in this very uh, 2009, the challenge comes to us. You will love, live what you love. And he asks us, am I still in love with God then? Because in the middle of the trial, the real you comes out. And the love of your life. What your values, your priorities come to the surface. And James says that you love for God in the middle of the trial is what will get you through the trial. But also through temptation. We haven't got time to go into it, but he goes into temptation in this whole chapter. It's the same thing. Your love for God will get you through the temptations that come your way. But verse 14 seems to throw a spanner in the works because verse 14 of James chapter 1 seems to say that we have a heart that's incapable of loving God. We have a heart that's full of a sinful nature that keeps on making the wrong decisions, even in trials, but also in temptations. That's what it says in verse 14. So how can we love God? You can imagine the people listening to this when James was writing. How can we love God then if our hearts are just full of sin and it keeps on making the wrong decisions? That's why he writes verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits he created. Every needed good gift comes to us as a divine gift from God, and that includes a new heart. A new heart. See, Jeremiah prophesied the day when God would give his people a new tailor-made heart that would desire and seek to serve and obey. 
Ezekiel prophesied a new heart where a heart of stone would be transformed into a heart of flesh. And so James is saying there's a transaction that's already taken place. There's a work of God that's already taken place. In Christ, you have a new heart. Paul says you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you have been given a heart that will choose the right path. A heart to love. He chose to give us birth. It was all his decision. We didn't choose him. He chose us. And so we can love him. We can have a new heart. We can have his wisdom. And we can, because we love him, make the right decision, either when trials come, but also when temptation comes. So, are you still in love with God? A few nods. And I can, you know, imagine that you're in here going, yep, I love God. James knew that you were going to say that. So James follows that question up by saying this. Okay, you say you love God, but what does loving God look like? And are you doing it? See, it's one thing to say, yeah, I still love God. But we can deceive ourselves into thinking that this is what loving God looks like. And so James, who's ever so practical, says he anticipates the answer from his own believers. He will say, yes, of course I love God. And James then says, well, let me show you what loving God looks like then. Just to see whether actually you are loving God or not. You got your Bibles? You still awake? You doing all right? James chapter 1 verse 22. What does loving God look like? Am I doing it? James says this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein in his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Smack me in the face, James. Tell me to sit down and shut up. Verse 27, religion that our God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is James. James is so down to earth. He's a Yorkshireman. (laughs) Love is a verb, he says, basically. Love is a verb. Love requires action. But if we're not careful, we can deceive ourselves about what it means to love God. So he paints a picture. And he paints a picture of a man who gazes intently in a mirror and compares it to a man who's gazing intently at the word. So let's have a look at that in verse 24. The man with the mirror and the believer with the word. These are the two people that are being contrasted. The man in the mirror, it says in verse 23, observes. While the believer with the word looks into. It's the same word. Same meaning. There's no difference at their gaze. They are both looking intently. They're both looking with the same intensity. They are both equally serious In what they're looking at. Some people say, well, he's just gazing in it. You know, this kind of like, gaze in the mirror and and off again. That was very camp, wasn't it? Sorry about that. (laughs) It's not 
They're both gazing intently. They're focused. They're looking at it. They're observing. So the difference is what happens afterwards. Imagine tomorrow morning you wake up and you spend 30 minutes with your Bible open and you're reading your Bible. You spend a further 15 minutes meditating on it, reflecting what you've read. You've enjoyed it. More importantly, you've understood what you're reading. You look at the clock and suddenly you realize you've got to go to work or you've got to take the kids to school. It's what happens next that James is interested in. What will you do with the word you've just read? Are you going to obey it? Have you actually changed your mind to fall in line with what you've said? What you've read? Have you changed your attitude to someone or something? You see, the word that we read should change our value system. It should change the relationships we engage with. It should change the way we use our money, our time. It should change the way we watch things. It should change the way we respond to people in our communities and in our church, to the opportunities that are there. We're to be doers. You see, the difference is, the man with the mirror, look at the screen, goes away. He looks intently, but then he goes away. But the believer with the word, he says in the NIV, continues. And it literally means in the Greek, continues in its company. So, Mark, can I just borrow you for a second, please? Thank you. Just stand there. You don't have to say anything. You're okay. You're secure. Okay. So, I want you to imagine the first example. I'm the man. This is the mirror. And I'm just thinking, what a beautiful man you are. Very good. Thank you. So, the man's looking into the mirror. Right? He's observing it. He's looking at it. He's understanding what he's looking at. But then he goes away. Right? The second time, the man who is looking into the perfect law, he's looking at it intensely, understanding at it, but instead of, it comes with him. You see that? That's the difference. Thanks, mate. Beautiful, dazzling young urbanite there. <laughs> That's the difference. He doesn't leave the word, the word goes with him. We don't just interpret the word, the word interprets us and it interprets, interprets us in our world that we live in. So in other words, he takes the word with him so that when he faces a decision, the word is with him that enables him to make the right decision. When he's facing a trial, the word is with him so he's able to make the right decision. When he's handling money, the word is with him. Some of us have our quiet times where we read the Bible and we can't be like the guy who looks in the mirror and then just walks off and acts and thinks differently. That achieves nothing. It doesn't produce anything. And it certainly won't bring about transformation in the world around us. We have to look intently, gaze at it, but take it with us so that the word is constantly interpreting us as we engage with our world. Do you understand? Do you grab? Finally, James closes this section. By painting a picture of what a life of loving God, shaped by the word, looks like. See, you ask the question, what does... You say you love God. James says, well, I'll tell you what loving God looks like. It's this. Loving God looks like a person who's not just listening to the word, but lets the word go with him. And interprets his world around him. Changes his world around him. That's what loving God looks like. What effect will that have? Well, the effect is this. That actually, you'll look like him. Oh, she looks like 
his dad. Her dad. Like father, like son. If we allow the word to do that, if we're shaped by it, we actually start to love like the father in heaven loves. Jesus commanded us to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. James is saying the same thing. As we mature, we should actually hear people saying more and more about us. Oh, you look like your father in heaven. Verse 27, let's remind ourselves, what's dad like? What's our heavenly father like? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is where we're going to go over the next four weeks. We're going to explore what loving God looks like. See, with the Father, the Father speaks life and truth. James refers to it. The whole Bible encapsulates that. The Father speaks life and truth. So how does the children behave? The children should have a controlled tongue. Chapter 3 in the book of James. Majors on the tongue. About controlling our tongue. About being sources of blessing and healing and hope and life. So we're going to spend a week. Week 3. Looking at the tongue. The father takes care of the helpless, James says. And the whole of the Bible is about how he does that. How should his children behave? They should be moved by the needs of others. Chapter 2 is all about having a a compassion, a heart for the needs of others and being moved to do something about it. That's what we'll look at next week. The father is holy and so are his purposes. And so how does that affect us? Well, his children are to live and think differently to the world. They operate according to a different set of values. And so the end of chapter 3 and the whole of 4 and 5 is all about how we live a holy and distinct life. That's different to the world around it. How we to interact with our relationships because we're different. And we're different only because we're the father's children and we live according to a different set of values. So that's where we're going to go. That's the pathway we're looking at. See, you answer, yeah, I'm still loving God. But James says to you, well, are you loving God like God loves Because God speaks life and hope. Because God looks for the opportunity to serve and to give. Because God ministers life all the time. Wherever there's need. Because he's holy. And we're to live differently. Love is a verb. It requires us listening and then doing. What's the point of having all the answers if our lives contradict James is saying to his church, don't contradict the answer that's already within you. Loving God is so practical, James says. You can come in here and sing your lungs out. Sing like you're winning. But actually live contradictory to what it's all about. James is looking for fruit in the way you live. James is saying, is there enough evidence to convict you that you're a follower of Jesus? Is there enough evidence to convict you that you love God and love God in this kind of way? Let's pray. Just in a moment of stillness and quietness, just allow the word of God to just ask those questions again if you're on it. Am I on the pathway to maturity? 
Am I in a trial? Am I being tested? Am I holding on? Well, if you are, God bless you. May God give you strength to endure, to persevere. Am I enduring because I love God? Well, you can have a new heart because Jesus Christ does that. Gives us a new heart so that we can obey, that we can serve, that we can love. Am I loving like actually God loves? Practically. Father, we, we ourselves gaze into the mirror of your word. And we let your word interpret us. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to take what we need out of this and to change, to be transformed. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, nurtured, strengthened in everything that we do. That 2009 would be a year where we would grow to maturity. One more step. One more stepping stone. In the name of Jesus, we pray.